Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swartz. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 365th show of ROI. And our guest for today's show is Ryan Burchett, co-owner of Mississippi River Distilling, uh, who is talking to us about retooling for the COVID-19 uh, war effort. The history buff for today's show is Brett Menard. The show's theme song is Kayla's theme, written and performed by Mark Zapzaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called History is Local, and today we'll be talking about retooling for the COVID-19 war effort with owner Ryan Burchette of the Mississippi River Distilling. Ryan, when did you decide that your company needed to become part of the COVID-19 response effort? Well, it was really a pretty wild week. Uh, so coming out of St. Patrick's Day, I think it, I, every day is melted into every other one. So I can't even tell you what day it was. But uh, <laughs> the uh, the governor came out and said, look, you know, all the bars are shut down and whatnot. Um, while we distribute our liquor across 20 different states, our single biggest customer is still our shop in LeClaire. Um, selling cocktails, selling by the bottle, the, the foot traffic there. And we looked around and uh, kind of said, well, it's been a good run. If this is it, uh, it's not our fault. And uh, we might want to start polishing up the resumes because I don't know how long this business school is going to last without, uh, without revenue coming out the front door. And uh, about that time, uh, some small distilleries out west, and keep in mind that, you know, Seattle, Portland, the, the, those areas were – into this much sooner than we were here in the Midwest. They were taking their waste alcohol, making it into hand sanitizer and giving it out for free. And the Wall Street Journal or somebody picked it up. And so I bet no shortage of like 500 people, it seemed like, emailed this to me. Hey, you guys should start making hand sanitizer and giving it out. And I'm like, right now, I don't even know how I'm going to keep the lights on, let alone start giving stuff away. Um, So uh, we were kind of joking about it. Well, then the next day, the Food and Drug Administration um, and the Alcohol Tax and Trade Bureau put together some guidance and shipped it out that through the trade of if you were licensed for beverage alcohol, you could manufacture uh, hand sanitizer if you followed these very specific guidelines, um, which were very simple. Uh, it's a it's a very institutional style hand sanitizer. It's 80% alcohol. You have to be at 60% in order to be effective against the COVID-19 virus, but they went to 80% so that if somebody screwed this up a little bit, it still was going to be effective. Right. (laughs) And then it's got a a little glycerin in it, so it doesn't completely dry your hands out, some peroxide and water. That's it. Um, And the guidelines changed a couple, three, four times during the first week. But there was tremendous cooperation between these government agencies, letting people know what was going on. And next thing you know, we're all of a sudden – changing from a liquor manufacturing plant to figuring out how to make this hand sanitizer. Um, And literally within a matter of days, 
we had switched things over and uh, were trying to navigate the supply chain to come up with a bunch of new things that we had never done before. We'd never bought jugs, plastic bottles, childproof caps. We'd never uh, done any of this stuff. Our tanks um, had to be grounded and uh, set up to hold high-proof alcohol. Uh, we changed our fermenting tanks over to alcohol storage tanks. So this stuff comes in, um, you know, it's it's 90% alcohol. So uh, a static spark could send the roof flying. So, uh, you know, we had to, to take some steps like that, get some different pumps in so that they were explosion proof. Usually we water our stuff down before we move it around and things like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't a huge overhaul, but there were some things we had to think about and, and get ready to go and just hit the ground running not really knowing what we were doing as far as the distribution, the sale of how we were going to get this done. Uh, but we did it. And now here we are about a month into it. And uh, we're pushing thousands of gallons out the door a week, just trying to keep up with the demand, which we can't come close to doing. Um, but thankfully there's people doing this all over the country. And uh, uh, we're just one of, of many people that are, are jumping in it it's cool that there's a tremendous community need and quite frankly, it also is saving our business. So it's a, it's a win-win for everybody. All right. Um, you kind of went down that path a little bit. Um, how you described how quickly you had to adjust, I thought was completely mind boggling, but again, um, back to the money. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not expecting you guys to come out of this uh, J.P. Morgan, but uh, are the profits um, po- positive enough that when this virus um, goes away, that the transition back to your initial cash cow is going to be cap- – uh, you'll, you'll be able to do it? I, I, I'm confident that we will. Um, the it's we are still making or packaging alcohol that we have in storage and stuff like that. We're not running the still for that, but we have we just this week had to send out a bunch of whiskey to Chicago because they were out, and so we're trying to we're still selling on the store shelves. So we have that that revenue coming in, which is important, and we we certainly aren't abandoning our brands in that regard. Um, we don't know how long this is going to last from a business standpoint. Um, you know, it, it could go away as quickly as it came on if, you know, the Purells of the world catch up finally. But what's really, you know, as we start looking down the pipe at this, what's really interesting is we, we can foresee, uh, you know, the next couple of weeks, but this has just literally changed hourly over the past month. It seems like that things are happening and changing so quickly um, that uh, we don't know what the landscape's going to look like. And there's an argument to be made that there may be greater demand for this once people go back to work than there is now because everybody's going to want uh, a sprayer of it on their on the corner of their desk. And if they don't want one, the lawyers will probably make sure that they do have one. So um, right. the demand probably isn't going to go down. You know, that would be awesome if you could have the sprayer on one corner desk and the bottle of whiskey on the other corner going back to work. See, now that's my perfect world. Just don't get them mixed up, all right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> hey, um, Ryan, I'm interested because you, you talked about having to basically learn a whole new set of logistics. Um, what was that like, and, and did you get some help along the way? You, you know, were there other distilleries out there who had done this 
before you that you could tap into and say, okay, this is where you get, this is how you buy child-proof bottles, and these are the kinds of jugs that you need to get. And those, because to me, that to, to try to do that in the time frame that you did it just seems almost mind-boggling. Well, and the other thing you have to consider is that there were 2,000 other guys that had never been in this arena trying to do the same thing. So the, the supply chain was really maxed out. Um, I would say that from, like, a uh, standpoint of what were other distilleries doing, the trade organizations have been tremendous as far as disseminating information, keeping everybody plugged in, saying, hey, this is a hazardous material for shipping. These are DOT regulations you need to be thinking about. Hey, this stuff is, uh, you know, you could blow the roof off if you're not careful. Here's things you need to be doing with your tanks. Those safety things, um, communicating what changes were coming from the feds and uh, everything as that was going. That's been the main discussion between distillers. Now we've had some distillers we've talked to. I've had people call me, where are you getting your jugs? What are you doing? You know, um, we work pretty closely with Cedar Ridge over in Swisher between Iowa City and Cedar Rapids. Uh, we have good friends in Chicago, Michigan that we've grown up in the industry with that we've shared ideas with and things of the sort. Um, what, to really get into supply chain stuff, we leaned on existing relationships. Like the companies that we bought our bottles from were saying, all right, do you know people in the plastic jug business? And so, the, you know, you, you figure out who you know and ask who they know and, and go from there. The other interesting thing, which is kind of hilarious and ironic, is that we're not packaging our own alcohol. As part of this, the government, when the, as these regulations came about, if we were going to sell it, it had to be pharmaceutical-grade alcohol so it could be used in hospitals and things like that. So while our alcohol is clean enough for that, we're not certified in that fashion, and certainly that's not going to happen in quick order. So um, we have had to buy uh, alcohol uh, that's made at a large distillery. So if you think you're getting Cody Road whiskey made into hand sanitizer, you're not. I hate to disappoint you. <laughs> Okay. One of the really interesting things is that one of the largest, two of the largest plants in the nation for this kind of alcohol are in our backyard. You got Archer Daniels Midland in Clinton, Cedar Rapids, and then grain processing down in Muscatine. And so, again, leaning on relationships, we work, uh, we buy some of our supplies, uh, cleaning supplies and that kind of thing from Barton Solvents in Bettendorf, who they bring in truckloads of the. Uh, ethyl alcohol from grain processing we started off getting drums of it and quickly moved on to getting into their rotation for uh, truckloads and so we've converted every tank in the plant into an alcohol holding tank so that we can bring in a truckload empty that semi truck and then work through it as fast as we can um, some of the other things that came in from a logistical standpoint is like okay now we're going to have thousands of gallons of this stuff moving out. How do we keep our distillery floor safe? How do we keep our employees safe? How do we keep our customers safe to have thousands of people trying to pick this stuff up? So uh, the, we started working on, all right, um, how do we leverage existing things that we have in-house? So, like, if you order – uh, hand sanitizer from us. We, we have a guy, one of our employees is one of our bartenders is a big web designer. He does it on the side. We have him working from home, handling all of our web ordering and processing of stuff. I have another employee that we are able to keep on staff who sits at home and processes PayPal invoices. So if you order from us, you get a PayPal invoice so you can pay before you come 
So all we have to do is check your name off the list and bring it out to the curb so we don't have to have you, uh, you know, doing credit card processing and that kind of thing. Um, we found out really fast that a lot of people just needed one gallon, not cases of this stuff. So uh, K&K Hardware and Bettendorf approached us, hey, could we carry this stuff and sell it? And I said, we'll do even better. How about we send all of the orders of less than a case to you, and you can handle that of the one-offs, and then we'll do the bulk orders of cases and larger. So that minimizes the traffic we have here. It helps support their local business. They have the staff on hand to be able to better handle that. Um, then we had people that said, I don't need a gallon. I just need, oh, I just want a small sprayer. Well, uh, we hooked up with the folks at uh, Simply Soothing in Columbus Junction. You're familiar with probably with Bug Soother, the little spray bottles, keep the gnats away. So they're taking it in bulk from us, repackaging it into smaller bottles, and then they're selling it on their website. We can't ship it out because you have to be licensed, especially to send the hazardous material It's because it's flammable through the mail. They're already licensed for that, so they're handling web orders. So all these little things have come into play that, that are almost an accident, but that have helped make the system flow smoother and help people keep people a little safer on the interactions that we have to have with each other. Because somebody gets sick at our plant, it's all done. You know, we got to shut right. down and, and be finished with it. So all of these things that you never would have considered on a sunny day have come into play through this, and somehow it's all worked out, you know, knock on wood. Okay, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. KALA 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues. And the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Ryan Burchett, co-owner of Mississippi River Distilling, and we are talking about retooling for the COVID-19 war effort. Our history buff for today's show is Brett Menard. Brett, the floor is yours. Thanks. You talked in the last segment about how you really set up a local distribution network. So who are some of the um, bigger institutional uh, buyers around here that can't find uh, the sanitizer they need uh, elsewhere? Uh, that's an interesting point because probably our biggest customers are institutional customers. We thought when we first started doing this, we were trying to give priority to, you know, medical, first responders, that kind of thing. We found out real quickly that while those people needed a gallon here, a gallon there, the people that needed a bunch of this were Deer, Arconic, Han, uh, the railroads, trucking companies, people like that that are – either have people on manufacturing floors or delivery people that are in and out interacting with folks a lot and they can't get somewhere to wash their hands. Um, 
I was surprised. I thought it would be the other way around. Uh, but our the vast majority of our bulk sales have been those institutional type entities. Um, the arsenal has taken a bunch of it. So, um, and, and it's been really great to be able to help those local people. And we're trying to give them priority as we're getting this stuff out there. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to ask the interesting what if question. Um, <laughs> if, if this thing continues to, to really roll along and, and we start to move back to normal, do you see this becoming a branch business for you that you would stay in this, go back to doing your, your uh, alcohol distilling, but, but stay in this as well? Is, is it that kind of, of business? Because it sure seems like you've solved an awful lot of problems. Right. And please don't quit the other one from my perspective. <laughs> right. Well, uh, we, it was funny because we've been working so hard to get this hand sanitizer out the door, and we had a little window in between um, trucks of ingredients and we were going to kind of take a couple of days off. And then we had this big order from Chicago that needed whiskey. So we were bottling whiskey and, there, and people were kind of bumming about it. Now having to work for, I was like, Hey guys, <laughs> remember when? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can hear uh, you going, good. you know, we do to sell whiskey here, guys. <laughs> right. So we are not Mississippi River Disinfectant Company. So, uh, <laughs> That's right. uh, they, I, I won't say that it hasn't crossed my mind of like, what does this look like long term? Do we alternate back and forth? Do a week of this, a week of that? Um, we're going to run out of the luxury of the inventory that we have in our basement to supply uh, distributors with. So we will have to to get back to that t- from time to time. Um, I think for right now. Our our attitude is what do we have to do to get through today? And I think that's kind of the attitude of the country. Um, uh, just because we just don't know what it's going to look like a couple, couple weeks down the road or whatnot. But um, uh, certainly I, I'm starting to come to terms with the fact that this is probably not going to go away as fast as it came on and that we're going to be dealing with this probably beyond this calendar year. So those decisions are going to have to come. Um, I think it it will be easier to make some of those determinations of how we navigate that world once people start getting back to work and we start to see what the landscape is long-term. But for right now, it's it's pedal to the metal as much of this stuff as we can get out the door. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball because my folks used to have a vending business and we dealt a lot with, with bars. And it was always said that you made your money off alcohol and food was a side uh, project. Well, obviously that has changed. A lot of those establishments out there, they're, they're staying afloat through uh, takeout and carryout. Um, I'm asking you from your business dealing with the bars in the community that just pretty much sold alcohol, uh, they're shut down. Do you see um, them recovering in any way, shape, or form? What is your opinion on that? Uh, because my father, who was in the business and from a different perspective, already has his theory. So how do you read it? I am uh, I'm really – sad for what the future holds for my friends in the food and beverage industry. So many bars and restaurants live paycheck to paycheck anyway. 
Um, right. I can relate, you know, uh, with, with, when our bar shut down, if I wouldn't have had this hand sanitizer, I'd, I'd be in the same boat. Um, it's just not built to go months without revenue. I mean, and in some situations, some of these places are probably better off to just be forced to be closed because it's counterintuitive to think that, that if we could just at least get something out the door, we'd be better off. But the second things reopen, there's going to be a bunch of overhead that's met of buying all the inventory and doing all the things to get back up and running and bringing employees in. But is that, it's not like we're going to flip a switch and all those places are going to be full again. People are not going to be rushing out to be around other people. And I've thought about it extensively. How do we reopen this bar? Our, pl- our place is small. Um, you can't social distance without, you could only have about six people in our place. I don't know what that looks like on the other side. And I think there are going to be a huge number of casualties right here in our backyard, mom and pop and, and, and chain chain organizations as well are not built for this. All of a sudden, all of their uh, franchise fees dry up. You may see some really big name chains go down the tubes too. There are going to be a lot less, options for being out on the town in the quad cities and across this country by the time this is all said and done and it's uh it's going to affect a lot of close friends of mine and i'm just terrified for that okay you bet brad well and you touched on this a little um with the lag time between um distilling whiskey and and how long it ages are we are we going to see shortages as a reminder years down the road because uh, people won't have had time to age it? Or do you think more people will blend? Or how do you think that's going to work? That's an interesting idea. I hadn't really thought too much about it. We have about four years' worth of whiskey downstairs in our barrel room right now. So I, I'm pretty confident that we would march through it without the consumer noticing much of a difference by the time we get a few years down the road and get to this hole in our production. But uh, it, it, there's been such a whiskey boom across this country, and especially the big guys have been cranking out so much whiskey. It might be a good thing if everyone let their stills cool down for a couple minutes uh, while we work through this thing. That's a, it's a, uh, it's bite a, your tongue. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really interesting part of this business of finding that sweet spot of making enough and not too much and not too little that the, I really marvel at how the big guys can navigate that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. That'll, that'll be an interesting thing to see for you in 2024. Yeah, um, Brian, you talked about your employees. I, I don't know that our listeners know. Uh, how many people, when you were running um, at sort of your peak of your al- alcohol production, how many people did you have on staff, and, and where are you sitting now? So we have 16 employees part-time and full-time combined. A lot of those are our bartenders and our tour guides um, that uh, some of our, our take, a lot of our tour guides are retired folks and they're just staying away. We actually just got one of them out of the hospital was positive and um, it well into his seventies. And we're just so grateful that he's doing good now. Um, and, and we just don't want those people exposed to, to a bunch of extra folks. So they're staying home. Um, a couple of our bartenders, we've retooled into positions um, aiding in the hand sanitizer. We have a full-time sales guy in Chicago. I told you earlier, he's 
we've routed our phone to him. He just sits around and answers the phone all day. We've got a bartenders doing web. We've got uh, folks doing ordering at home. And then there's four of us that manufacture the hand sanitizer, me and my brother, our local sales manager, and then our, our full-time distiller. So the four of us are the only ones on the distillery floor ever. We don't let people in there. And uh, so we're, we're keeping, we've got about eight people on full-time right now and then a few people part-time. So we're, we're, we're keeping most of our floor. And, and we've invited some people back that have said, you know what, I, I think I'm comfortable just being home with my kids and, and riding this thing out. And we're certainly supportive of that. Um, but uh, we feel really good that we've at least been able to keep quite a few people working through this. And, and it's um, uh, certainly one of the biggest benefits of all of this is just keeping people paid. Okay, okay John, you get the, uh, the last uh, open question oh. here. Okay. Uh, quick question. When you're talking about regulations with the feds, which obviously is needed, especially when you're talking about such explosive um, elements, uh, did they stop and check you out like an uh, OSHA does, or how exactly did you guys go about that? Well, we're monitored by the federal government anyway, but mainly from a taxation standpoint is the biggest thing they're interested in. But we did have to register with the FDA as uh, to be able to make this stuff. Um, we can only make this very specific formula that they've released, and uh, you have to keep to that. They've given us the very specific labeling instructions and everything. But the, for the FDA to bring on essentially 2,000 dis extra distilleries within a couple of days, uh, they took months of processing and got it through the system almost immediately. It was stunning. Um, and the coordination with the – so the, the Tax and Trade Bureau, uh, if, if we would have made this hand sanitizer anyway and it would have gone out, we would have had to pay the beverage tax on it. At, which would have resulted in a $200 gallon of hand sanitizer, you know? So uh, <laughs> the, they, they relax that and are allowing us to pass it through and, and say, okay, they're taking this beverage alcohol, but they're denaturing it. So it's good. And you don't have to pay the tax on that. That was the biggest hurdle that got cleared. So there's been tremendous coordination from the top to the bottom to get all this stuff moving and uh, things that I never dreamt we'd see. So it's, it's been impressive. All right. Well, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. Ryan, why do you think retooling a distillery to produce hand sanitizer is relevant in today's world? I, it's going to be really interesting down the road to look back at this through the lens of history, at, at how history looks at this whole situation for starters. And then, too, you know, you hear the stories of World War II. This factory started making um, parts for the tanks and this and that, you know, whatever, um, that we are going to be part of that story. And I think that that's what history really is, is stories. And in a very unique way, we're going to be part of the story of how the Quad Cities navigated this um, because of how we've worked with Deer and the Arsenal and some of these local um, organizations. Uh, I'm very proud to be part of that story. And I think that um, uh, the other thing is that this company is going to live to tell a story instead of being a bookmark of history because uh, we had to fold and go bankrupt. So in all of the, for all of those reasons, um, I feel very blessed and, and grateful uh, for the community and the way that they've reacted and the way that they've helped us. Um, 
get this thing together and, and to be customers and to, you know, um, handle all of these weird things that we've had to do in order to pull it off. So, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a big thank you to all the folks that have visited us and uh, been a part of this. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes our 365th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappital. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Ryan Burchett, co-owner of Mississippi River Distilling, who talked with us about retooling the COVID-19 war effort. The history buffer today's show is Brett Menard. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basuchu proverb, Hoso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.